This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Justine Lee, and I'm an emergency critical care and veterinary specialist. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we're really excited to be speaking with veterinary oncologist, Brianna Keller, who's a board-certified veterinary oncologist at the Animal Emergency and Referral Center in Minnesota. So we're going to be talking about a really important, serious topic, which is pet cancer. We'll be right back after these messages. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Dynavite for life. Pick up two tubes of Dogosuds. Get the third tube free. Peppermint, tea tree, lavender, Dogosud shampoo. Made with all-natural coconut, jojoba, aloe. Great for healthy skin and soft, shiny coats. But no itchy, harsh chemicals. Lather up, rinse away. Try Dogosuds. Buy two, get one free. At Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. Really excited to have Dr. Brianna Keller, who's a board-certified veterinary oncologist, and today, we're going to be talking about cancer. Dr. Keller, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to get to talk about what I do and how we can help our pets with cancer. Wonderful. So just so our audience can get to know who you are, do you mind telling us what's the difference between a veterinarian who does chemotherapy or may see cancer patients and what you do? Can you give us a little bit of background about where you trained and what makes you a veterinary oncologist? Yeah, so a veterinary oncologist is a veterinarian who specializes in the diagnosis, staging, and treatment of cancer. So oncologists have completed the four years of veterinary school, like all veterinarians have, and then they've typically completed one to two uh, one-year internships in general medicine and then some possibly oncology-specific training, followed by a three-year residency. So this is all after veterinary school. And then to become board-certified, oncologists have to complete that residency, publish a paper to an a peer-reviewed medical journal, and then pass a rigorous two-day exam. So I went to veterinary school at the University of Minnesota, graduated in 2013, and then I spent five years after graduation doing my internships at NC State Veterinary Hospital in Raleigh, North Carolina, where I completed two one-year internships and then my three-year residency in oncology, and then uh, decided to move back up to Minnesota. I was a little crazy and kind of missed the snow, so I've been very happy back up here. I can definitely say we're glad to have you in, in the state of Minnesota. And Dr. Keller didn't say this, but NC State is one of the leading experts and leaders in the field of veterinary oncology. So one of the top diagnoses that I often see in the ER, which is really hard, is telling that owner of that dog or that cat that their dog or cat has cancer. And I wanted to talk about the importance of this topic because I often feel like as our pets live longer, 
we oftentimes do see cancer as one of the top three causes of death in dogs and cats. So I wanted to see if you can tell us, first of all, what are the top three most common types of cancer that you see in dogs versus cats? Yeah, so I would say both dogs and cats tend to get a lot of lymphoma, which is a cancer of a type of white blood cell called the lymphocyte. And since it's a blood cell and blood goes everywhere in the body, lymphoma can also arise anywhere in the body. The most common site in cats is actually in the gastrointestinal tract, while the most common site in dogs is in the peripheral lymph nodes, the ones we can feel on an external exam. That's probably where the differences or the similarities end. And dogs dogs also develop hemangiosarcoma coma, which I know we'll chat a little bit more about later, which is a cancer of the cells lining the blood vessels. And then they also tend to get uh, mast cell tumors, which are a skin cancer of a type of immune cell that lives in the skin called the mast cell. And those can behave anywhere from being super benign and cured with surgery to being very metastatic or likely to spread to other parts of the body. Cats tend to get probably oral squamous cell carcinoma, which is a very aggressive tumor of the cells that line the oral cavity. In cases like that are why it's important to try to examine your own cat's mouth and also, you know, get your cat to the vet for those regular exams, you know, to try to, you know, take a peek in the mouth just because a lot of times by the time we diagnose that oral cancer in cats, they're often too advanced for even aggressive treatment to significantly, you know, help those patients. Cats also tend to get mammary tumors or essentially breast cancer. And it's especially seen in cats that were spayed later in life or have not been spayed yet. And in cats, about 90% of mammary tumors are malignant and those have a pretty high rate of, of spreading to other sites of the body too. Canine breast cancer is about 50-50, so about half of those are malignant and half are benign, but you have to have them removed to find that out. A little bit of a tangent, you brought up how when we spay cats later in life, they're at a potentially increased risk of malignant breast cancer. And I know a lot of breeders out there and a lot of pet owners are seeing information about potentially spaying or neutering their purebred dogs later in life. So maybe at one and a half to two years of age, instead of the traditional six months that vets have done in the past, because they're worried about it affecting the rate of cancer. Is there a stance that most veterinary oncologists take when it comes to early spay and neuter or doing it later in life? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And unfortunately, there's not an easy answer and there's not a consensus. So there have been some studies published on specific breeds of dogs with specific cancer types that actually suggest there may be a protective effect at spaying a little bit later in life, but that cannot be applied to all breeds of dogs and cats, all cancers. And so there's not kind of a blanket, yes, you should spay later in life type of thing. It's a very case-by-case basis. And an oncologist would never, you know, Know, refute the positive effect of trying to control, you know, pet populations and save those animals in shelters by doing early spays and neuters. So it's definitely a case-by-case basis that you should talk to your veterinarian about. Thank you so much. Now, you talked about the three most common types of cancer. Now, when do you know to seek a referral to a veterinary oncologist? In other words, you've already spoken to your veterinarian about it. You have a diagnosis. When should I see an oncologist? 
Yeah. So honestly, any pet that's been diagnosed with cancer, I personally feel like you might be able to benefit from consultation with an oncologist. Some cancers in dogs and cats can be benign and unlikely to metastasize. So no further treatment may be needed. And in those cases, your primary care vet may be able to discuss the recommended follow up. But for a lot of those common cancers, I've had, you know, a lot of pet owners still come to me just because they want to discuss their pet's cancer directly with a specialist. And I don't think any primary veterinarian would deny them that ability. But again, for a lot of those kind of benign and common cancers, your primary vet is often familiar enough to be able to answer any of the pet's questions. For pets that need more advanced care, so the more aggressive or uncommon cancers that your vet may never have seen before, but an oncologist may have more experience with, those are the patients that I probably work with the most. And so if it's a pet that needs additional surgery or chemotherapy or to talk about radiation therapy, I work a lot with families to try to find a treatment plan that's best for the pet, trying to really do that individualized cancer care. I also have some patients whose cancer specifically, I'm not actually treating, but we're focusing more on palliative and hospice care. So an oncologist can actually be a really good resource and just maximizing quality of life for cancer patients, even if we're not actually treating the cancer. All right. Now I did want to ask, is there anything we can do earlier to potentially pick up on signs of cancer in dogs or cats? Like, is there anything we can do? Should we be doing yearly x-rays or yearly blood work or certain blood tests where we as pet owners might be able to detect it earlier? Yeah, so going to your vet regularly is one of the best things that you can do to try to detect those changes, just because it's something that you as a pet owner might not realize is a concern, but your veterinarian might. If you ever notice kind of an external lump or bump when you're feeling your animal, those should always be evaluated by a veterinarian. Unfortunately, it's impossible for any veterinarian, even an oncologist, to tell what a lump or bump is just by looking at it and feeling it. So they'll likely talk to you about doing a test called a fine needle aspirate, in which we just insert a small needle, no bigger than the kind we'd use to get a blood sample with, to insert into the mass, put that sample on a slide and, and look at it ourselves or send it to a pathologist. In addition to the regular exams, annual blood work is really great too, because I think people often think that animals with cancer are sick. And often when they present, to the ER, they are, but cancer starts somewhere. And, and if we can catch it before the animal's feeling sick, it can often mean a better prognosis. So in senior animals, especially when cancer is more common, that annual blood work, and if they're over the age of eight to nine, I actually recommend blood work every six months. And even considering like screening x-rays and ultrasounds, especially if you see any abnormalities on blood work is, is really important. A lot of the symptoms of cancer, you know, it's not always just an external lump or bump. If it's internal, you might not notice anything, but any symptom like a cough, limping, diarrhea, vomiting, any symptom of illness should really be investigated and honestly could be a sign of an underlying cancer. Let's take a short break and we'll continue with this really important topic right after these messages from our sponsors. Do you have an accident prone dog or cat? Well, if your dog or cat goes into the ER for an emergency, it's often unexpected and can be expensive. Well, here's something that can help. USO is a community-based cost-sharing health coverage plan for pets. Community is at the heart of USO, where members commit to help one another when their pets have unexpected health needs. USO isn't an insurance or a provider, but it's a platform that allows members to share expenses together safely and secretly. 
So what's part of USO's secret sauce? Complete transparency on where their users' money is going. USO members pay a flat subscription fee, $17 a month, plus a portion of shareable expenses. That flat subscription fee covers the use of the platform. And the monthly shareable expenses, which will never exceed $48 a month, will vary depending on how many expenses are submitted by the group that month. Save over 80% compared to traditional pet insurance by paying a flat subscription fee. For more information, go to USO.com. That's E-U-S-O-H.com. Use promo code PETLIFE and get your first two months free at USO.com. E-U-S-O-H.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. We're talking with board-certified veterinary oncologist, Dr. Brianna Keller, who's a veterinary oncologist at the Animal Emergency and Referral Center in Minnesota. And so far, what we've been discussing is the importance of being able to pick up on signs of cancer in your dog or cat by making sure that you're taking your dog or cat into the veterinarian so they can do an exam. And we're also talking about when we should be consulting with a veterinary oncologist. Now, I did want to talk to you about treatment, including chemotherapy or radiation therapy. I know in the ER, as soon as I even bring up chemo, a lot of pet owners have had a loved one, a two-legged family member who's gone through chemo and they instantly have a almost visceral reaction against it. And I always recommend, you know what? I always encourage you to talk to the veterinary oncologist and at least make that one appointment. It doesn't commit you to doing the full year of chemotherapy, but at least it lets you talk to the expert in that area. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners, what are some potential side effects of chemo and what is the general treatment when we are treating certain types of cancer in our dogs and cats? One of the biggest misconceptions people have is just like you said, that chemotherapy is going to make their pets sick, mostly because all they've known about is how hard it is on humans. And the truth is that the treatment goals are a little bit different in dogs and cats. So my goal for any dog or cat with cancer that I'm treating is to give them the highest quality of life for the longest period of time. In humans, the goal is honestly to try to cure first and foremost, and that is at any cost to the short-term quality of life of people. But that's, you know, not really acceptable for our dogs and cats who can't tell us what they want, can't tell us if they, you know, want to stop treatment, which humans have that that right. Chemotherapy drugs in general, they're designed to kill actively dividing cells, which is what cancer cells do. But other normal cells that divide rapidly can also be targeted. So these include the gastrointestinal tract. So we can see nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. And the bone marrow cells where all those blood cells are made can also be targeted. So patients do need regular blood work while on chemotherapy to check their blood cell counts. And if their cell counts do drop low, it is temporary, but they could potentially get an infection or get sick in that time frame. But only about 20% of dogs and cats have significant side effects from chemotherapy. So that means that 80% do great. And for the animals that do get sick, we tailor their treatment to add more supportive medications, decrease the dose, change the drug. And above all else, we can always stop 
treatment. It's not an all or nothing decision. You know, there are some cancers that I can cure, but for a lot, we're trying to prolong good quality of life. And if chemo is not a part of that good quality of life, then we can stop. And so overall, the majority of pet owners who elect to pursue chemotherapy for their dog or cat say that they would do it again. And they've done studies on this. They've surveyed people whose animals have gone through treatment. And, you know, depending on the study, 85, 90% said they'd do it again. I've even been joking accused of not giving a dog the treatment her owner was bringing her in for because her dog was still the same energetic self. And so dogs and cats can still enjoy all their normal activities, such as cuddling with their owners, going on hikes, sunbathing in porches. I have a patient who goes on 10-mile runs with her owner, and I also have one who goes to car shows with the owner. So it's all about their quality of life. And so we want them to be able to do all the things that make their quality of life good, even while they're on chemo. Wonderful. I actually wanted to see if I could ask you about radiation therapy, too. My own pit bull was diagnosed with a brain tumor years ago and ended up undergoing stereotactic radiation therapy. A lot of people, when they think of radiation therapy, they think of you know horrible potential side effects, and my dog did amazing. So I was wondering if you could just educate us a little bit about traditional radiation therapy versus something called CyberKnife or stereotactic radiation therapy, or SRT. Yeah, so there's several different types of radiation therapy out there that have different goals. So definitive radiation therapy, uh, the form that your dog underwent, um, was a type of, or the stereotactic radiation therapy is a type of definitive radiation therapy. And the goals of definitive are to try to control that tumor as long as possible. So overall, it ends up being, you know, a fairly high total dose of radiation. But going back to that quality of life thing, we want our dogs to tolerate that well. So it is a dose that's designed to try to, you know, kill as much of those tumor cells as possible. But usually dogs and cats, and depending on the area where the tumor is that's getting the radiation treatment, that's kind of where the side effects come from. So, you know, if it's a nasal tumor, sometimes the skin and, you know, the the inner lining of the nasal cavity can get some irritation, but those side effects resolve. Definitive radiation can be delivered. You know, the traditional form is typically in 15 to 20 treatments done under general anesthesia, not because radiation is painful, but a human and you can ask them nicely to lay still for a little bit while they get the treatment. And our patients obviously can't do that. So they just need to be anesthetized. They're not moving, which allows them to make sure they're targeting the radiation to the same dose. Stereotactic radiation is a bit more sophisticated form of radiation that allows for a very highly targeted beam. And so what this means is that there's going to be very minimal other tissue involved in that field that allows them to deliver a higher dose per treatment, not not all tumors are candidates for that type of radiation. Um, and so there's a separate specialty called radiation oncology because the size of the tumor, what tissues are near the tumor, as well as how kind of well-defined the tumor is on imaging like a CAT scan all play into whether or not an animal is a candidate for that stereotactic. And cyber knife is just a term for a specific type or a specific machine of, of stereotactic radiation. As opposed to definitive radiation, palliative radiation is a lower total dose of radiation also delivered in fewer treatments. It's still, you know, somewhere between four to six treatments, um, but it's not as high of a dose as stereotactic. And the goal of palliative is not necessarily to try to control the tumor as long as possible, but it's really just comfort. 
that's what palliative means is comfort care. Can we shrink this tumor enough or decrease any inflammation around it to really just help provide that animal with a little bit more good quality time? But even palliative radiation can make some tumors shrink. So again, those are all options that a radiation oncologist can talk about in detail. But Overall, animals tolerate radiation well. I think people get worried about the multiple anesthetic episodes, especially because these are in older patients. But because it's kind of a light plane of anesthesia, we're not doing anything painful like a surgery that they need to be really deeply asleep. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And my last general question is, what's the prognosis? I know there's a ton of different types of cancer out there, but do you mind just giving us a ballpark estimate for maybe the most common types that you see with or without chemotherapy or other drugs? Yeah. So in terms for, I'll talk about lymphoma because that's probably one of the most common cancers that medical oncologists treat. It's, you know, there aren't really a lot of surgical or radiation options. So it is mostly chemotherapy. So I treat a lot of lymphoma patients. For canine lymphoma, depending on, you know, a couple different factors, like which specific type of lymphoma it is. Generally with chemotherapy, animals live probably around a year um, as opposed to maybe only one to two months without treatment. So we know we can prolong survival on those patients. And again, it's good quality time. The patient that runs 10 miles with her owner, she's a lymphoma patient. And so, you know, anytime you hear these numbers of prognosis, the other important thing to keep in mind is that these are what's called the median. So it's the halfway point of all the patients that have been reported with that cancer that got treatment. It's not a timestamp your oncologist is putting on your animals. So I love when clients call me, you know, well past what I told them the average was and, and say I was absolutely wrong and their pet's doing great. And that happens, you know, frequently. The flip side is that sometimes animals don't meet that mark. But in general, lymphoma patients that undergo treatment maybe get around, around a, a year. For cat lymphoma, the two main types that arise in the gastrointestinal tract in the gastrointestinal tract, if they get a type called small cell lymphoma, that's a more slowly progressive cancer. And most cats are diagnosed if they're having this kind of slow, you know, slow weight loss that's been going on for a few months or like chronic diarrhea. With treatment, those cats often live two years or more. So, you know, even better quality of life. If they have a type called large cell lymphoma in their gastrointestinal tract, the survival time for those cats is a little bit shorter, maybe in the realms of, you know, four four to eight months, but I will say cats have a lot more variability than dogs, just meaning if you look at all the studies looking at cat lymphoma, they're all over the board, whereas dogs kind of cluster around that median time. But cats, I've had cat patients that have lived five, six years with large cell lymphoma, despite the fact that reported times are you know, only five months. So there's just a lot more variability, which makes it even harder for me to help the pet owner kind of plan for how long they think that their cat's going to do. Some cancer types, you know, even with aggressive treatment, they might only live a few months. But, you know, regardless of what time we think a patient is going to get, again, the most important thing is that we want it to be good quality time. Because if, if we know it's a cancer we can't cure, what's the point of making them live longer if it's not going to be that good quality time? So it's all about making sure they're feeling well. And last question, you talk a lot about quality of life. When is a veterinary oncologist or how is a veterinary oncologist do you educate pet owners on what signs to look for? Like what, what assessment factors should we be looking for when it comes to deteriorating quality of life in our dog or cat and knowing that it may be time to consider euthanasia? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's several factors that I give 
people. And I often have this discussion at my new consults, even when their pet is doing well, because I do think it's a good idea to think about what's coming in the future, because it's really hard to think about that when you're in the moment and it might be time. It's a very emotional and heartbreaking decision to have to make. So I try to make sure people are as prepared as possible. But one of the things I do is kind of called the five things rule, where think Mm -hmm. of the five favorite things your animal likes to do. For most animals, one of them is usually eating, but maybe your dog has a favorite toy they like to play with, or your cat always loves to, you know, lay in this certain spot in the windowsill. You know, the five things that make your pet your pet, not just any other cat or dog. And when they're no longer willing or just able to do three or more of those things, I usually recommend considering euthanasia. You don't want to wait till they can't do anything that they enjoy. So when they're they're seeming like they're just, you know, not getting as much enjoyment out of life, I recommend considering it. Another thing that I think can be really difficult is that patients with terminal disease, not just cancer, but certainly a lot of cancer patients, they can have good days and bad days. So they might go a day where you know, they don't want to eat anything, you decide it's time. And then the next morning, they eat a whole bunch. And so that makes it really difficult to know, are, are they still enjoying life or aren't they? And so, you know, sometimes when they're kind of in that, you know, good day, bad day, trying to, you know, take a look at a week, so seven days, and just make a mental note, or even better, write it down at the end of the day. And do you think was that day an overall good day or an overall bad day? And when in a given week, the bad days outnumber the good. So if more than four of those days are, are bad, then it's also time to consider saying goodbye. The other thing I tell people is that it's honestly not wrong to say goodbye on a good day. Patients that have terminal incurable diseases, you know that even when they have a good day, they're going to have more bad days. And so euthanasia for our terminal patients, it's not just relieving current suffering, it's preventing future suffering. You are preventing your pet from ever having another bad day ever again. So I've euthanized cancer patients that are still eating and we bring them ice cream and Cheetos in the room and they're they're feeling great, but it's because the day before they were super painful, they couldn't move. And so their owners never wanted them to go through that again. So it's not wrong to say goodbye on a good day. Such fantastic information. I will say I was shocked how hard the decision was to euthanize my own dog because I do this quality of life talk every single day. And with my own dog, I really struggled with it. But I totally agree. And I always say, you know, there's certain appetite stimulants and pain medications we can put our dogs and cats on. But I always say once your dog or cat is diagnosed with cancer, just having that initial consultation with the board certified veterinary oncologist is so important. Um, just because it lets you weigh your options, it makes you feel like everything, you know, you've weighed all the options, you've done what you could to, to be able to get that information. Mm-hmm. And I've never had an owner regret euthanizing too early. They regret euthanizing too late. But please know that you do have options and it is a hard decision, but you can always talk to your veterinarian or your veterinary oncologist about that. Well, Dr. Keller, thank you so much for joining us today on Pet Life Radio. ER vet. This has been really helpful and so educational for our pet owners out there. Thank you so much for having me. I hope that this gave some insight to pet owners about what to watch for. And, you know, if you ever need an oncologist, uh, you know, certainly have your vet reach out to me if you're in Minnesota. Thank you so much. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. Find me at drjustinelee.com, on Facebook at Dr. Justine Lee, or email me your pet questions at drjustine at petliferadio.com. With that, we're out of time, and we want to thank Dr. Keller and Mark Winter, our producer, for making this show possible. See you at the next episode. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.